Please take your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We'll begin reading together in verse 24. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Another parable he, Jesus, put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not know, or excuse me, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then jump down with me to verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house, so a private setting. And his disciples came to him, saying, Master, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Our sermon title this morning is The Weeds and the Wheat. The Weeds and the wheat may be more often known as we even see the word in our text, the wheat and the tares. If you've heard this message preached before in your past, that might be how you've heard it labeled, the, the, the wheat and the tares. Well, what are tares in our common vernacular? Well, tares are just simply put, they're, they're weeds. And so that's what we find here. Jesus is pleased. Just a reminder of our context here. He is moved in a sense of judgment. He has moved away from speaking clearly, authoritatively in the sense of a plain message, a clear message, and now he is speaking with a device known as parables. He's taking examples and turning them, metaphorical examples, and turning them into and enlarging them into stories that illustrate, come alongside the truth. And without his explanation, they are simply riddles to some hearers. They don't understand them. There's a sense of hardness of heart and in unbelief 
And for some of the hearers, all that it is is a story that they do not understand. And even for the immature disciples who are growing, they come to Jesus with a desire to clarify some of the details. Master, help us to understand. Last time we looked into the Word of God together in Matthew's Gospel, we looked at the, the more famous, the parable of the sower and the four souls that were illustrated there in our text. Here Jesus picks up with a similar parable as that one of the parable of the four souls and the parable of the sower, but it is important for our purposes this morning that we notice some very clear distinctions as we walk through the text. These are not the same in some aspects, and they are similar in other aspects. We saw in the parable of the sower that as the sower goes forth to sow the seed, which is the word of God, there is only one of the four souls that actually will respond to the word of God, where the word of God will take root, where the word of God will find flourishing, and it, where it will mature and grow in that life. The word of God is the seed that will meet with good soil and bring forth lasting fruit. Friends, we're encouraged that even today in that sense that in the ministry of the reading of the word that has already taken place in the teaching of the Sunday school hour and the small group classes that God is growing his church through those who have a heart of good soul, his redeemed, that it brings forth lasting fruit, that God is redeeming his people, that God is calling out of darkness He's regenerating people through the seed, which is the word of God, the church, the called out ones. How does he do it? He does it through the teaching and preaching and the ministry of the word. But here, beginning in verse 24, notice we have a different parable that has similar themes. Notice verse 24. Another parable he brought forth. Another parable he put forth to them. This word another, of course, just means Another of the same kind. In fact, if you notice, we skip the middle section. We'll come back to those later. But Jesus goes on to give three parables that he introduces with the word another. He, he, he brings into this aspect. These are different facets of a truth that I want to be clear about or I want to communicate. So the Lord taught that God's work in this world, in this age, in our parable this morning, beginning of verse 24, is one that will be opposed one that will be hindered, one that will experience a ceaseless, tireless energy, as you think about just evil. But then in another sense, what we find out is that nothing can ultimately thwart God's plan and his purposes. Nothing can hinder the kingdom of God, as we'll find out in a few chapters, that Jesus, after most of this teaching, just reminds his disciples that he is building his kingdom. And that nothing can withstand that. With that in view, that we will see later on, there is a sense that where our everyday reality as we live life as here, sons of the kingdom, what this parable teaches is that as sons of the kingdom, that we are called to live alongside as sons of the kingdom, referring to disciples of Christ in, in plurality there, that we are called to live alongside the sons of the evil one the devil. How long? Until the end of the age. There will be no separation in this age. Now as Jesus teaches this and makes this clear, this is what his audience is struggling to come to grips with and struggling to understand. Jesus had come to a setting where most 
of the people in Israel saw themselves as nationally immediately a part of that spiritual kingdom. And they're expecting that the Messiah, the Redeemer, will come and bring about this future separating work, but not in the future, but that he'll do that now in their lifetime. And the Messiah that they're looking for is not seen or recognized in Jesus. He's not who they're looking for. Jesus has come as the sacrificial lamb who lays down his life in this first advent. But they want to skip ahead to the future judgment. They want vengeance now. In fact, many in his audience are actively seeking to bring that about. But this was so, had so permeated the mindset of Jewish culture. If you remember back in Matthew 11, it's part of the reason why John the Baptist had that doubt, the reoccurring doubt of saying, wait, Jesus, wait a second. Surely there's a, to be an advancement of a kingdom already beginning to happen, and here I am, I'm in jail. <laughs> Are you the one, or should we seek for another Messiah? Give me clarity. John was processing the thoughts of, no doubt, what Jesus is describing here in the future, the separating of the wicked from the righteous, which would be well underway in his time. Here we see that obscurity of preaching the kingdom that John had the privilege to do, and yet not fully understanding through a glass darkly the full details. And here Jesus is saying in this parable, just wait. For the here and now, in all of this, you're called to live alongside evil. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because every day, all around us, we see evil. And that evil leads to the why questions of life. Why is this allowed to happen? Why does this happen to me? Or why does this happen to them? Why is this happening to our church? Or why is this happening in our neighborhood? It leads to all kinds of why questions. Well, friends, hear the word of the Lord this morning and be reminded that in this life, this is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven has begun, but it is not here fully. The kingdom of heaven has begun spiritually, but physically it is not realized just yet. So here what we see in verse 24 is the parable is taught. The parable is declared to the audience there. Notice again verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like, what is it like? A man who sowed good seed in his field. He goes forth just like the sower in the previous parable. Verse 25. But while the men slept, his servants, his crew, and this vast farm that we can imagine, his neighboring enemy came and sowed among, in the same process, broadcasted the seed, the darnel seed, tares among the wheat, and he slipped away in the darkness of night. He went his way. You see that word sowed, twice the word sowed is used here in our text, but in verse 25, it has a different meaning. The initial one is just the initial act of sowing, but the, the sowing that is described in verse 25 means to sow on top of another, or to sow retroactively, to, to come along again. And to sow again. And that is exactly the process that we see. What is it that is sown? It's, it's weeds that are meant to drown out the crop or slow the crop or to dis discourage the crop or delay the crop or all the things that could happen is the purposes of just congesting this, this soil with an artificial seed. The thing about this seed, this Darnell seed, is when it is young, when it begins to sprout up, it looks exactly like the wheat initially. But as time goes on, it matures 
and it looks completely different. It reveals itself to be something completely different from the wheat. And at that point is when the harvest and the separation begins to take place. Verse 26, But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. This practice is not just a parable that Jesus is, is pulling in out of thin air. In fact, experts and commentators say that Roman law had already been established to prevent this from happening. This was a, this was a common practice, and Roman law was established to punish those who were caught doing this. The agrarian context was the driving force of the economy. It was an agrarian economy. One man would see another man's crops doing better than his crops. Jealousy would begin to take place, or he had a bad crop. For whatever reasons, wicked reasons, evil reasons, a neighbor would come alongside and seek to sabotage his competitor's crop with darnel, with weed, thereby sabotage his farm, his efforts. And this is what describes what Jesus wants us to know in the kingdom of God as he is working out his, the advance of the gospel. As his, his redeemed are bought and saved, they come to faith in Christ, become disciples of Christ. They are not taken immediately to heaven. There is a, a life to be lived, a life of faith, a life within a spiritual kingdom, if you will, that is lived out here. God, when he saves us, doesn't just take us straight to heaven. Oh, that we wish sometimes that that were so. Amen? But yet, it is a part of the will of God we be sanctified. And friends, we're not sanctified in heaven. We're sanctified on earth. And as long as God pleases within his providence and his sovereign will, he ordains that his disciples live for a period of time only known to him on this earth. For some, it's eight years. For some, it's an in infancy. For some, it's an 80 years. The point is, is none of us know we just live by faith. But God has ordained that we all live some measure or some period of time. This is... How it works. Verse 27, so the servants, the slaves of the owner, they came and they said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Immediately, he's not perplexed. He knows his work. He knows his seed. He knows the process. He knows the fruit. He's not confused. Let's just be clear on that. He understands exactly what has taken place here. And he just simply says, verse 28, an enemy has done this. So the servants then ask him again, do you want us to go and glean and gather them up? But he says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Here's the idea. As this artificial weed, Darnell weed, begins to grow, its root systems become intertwined with the root of the real wheat. And so in a real sense, what he's saying is, is that work is not your work to do. It is not your calling as the wheat to go and to start gleaning in the here and now. We'll talk more about that in, in a moment. But the fruit will reveal. That's the key point. The harvester, the Lord of the harvest, which is a previous title that Jesus reminds us of, the Lord of the harvest, when he comes, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 10, when he comes to harvest, he will do the separating work. That is not our work. That is his work. Now, just to be clear, it's not that you can't know the fruit of the wicked and the fruit of the righteous. That's understood. 
but the judge of all the earth will do that which is right. And he will do the separating of the tares. And that's what we see here. Verse 30, the harvest will be done in time. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, easily seen, the fruits revealed, gather them up, take them to be burned, and then take the other, gather my wheat into my barn. This is what the general crowd heard. This is what the disciples heard Jesus teach. This was the declaration of the parable. But yet notice how Jesus does not give any explanation. Again, why? This is inconsistent with what many people to, be, to know to be true about Jesus, right? We, we preach a complete version of Jesus here at Grace Church. It's not just the, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, which that is sufficient, by the way. If you understand the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end, it's more than just the Beatitudes. You have a complete Jesus there. But I, I say it like that because many people say, well, I'm a Beatitude Christian. Uh, I, I'm a Sermon on the Mount Christian. And when they say that, they're simply communicating that they even don't even know what is in the Sermon on the Mount. Because usually they're using that as a way to simply say, I'm focusing on the nicer side or the more from a human perspective, loving side of Jesus. But friends, there comes a point in the teaching ministry of Jesus. Why is he speaking in parables? It's not just a fun storytelling rhythm or, hey, let's just mix it up for a while. No, this is judgment. Jesus is judging the Jewish people. He's judging Israel because they have not received the simple, clear teaching of the gospel. They have not repented of their sins. As John the Baptist said, come and bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. Why do you come, O brood of vipers? Matthew chapter 3 and 4. Here Jesus is teaching in a way that is both edifying to the hearer by his sovereign spirit and yet hardening to the evil ones. And that's why he concludes the very last phrase you'll notice here in our text. Verse 43, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here, By the way, and I'll also point out something briefly here, is that they're content to not know. The broader audience is content to walk away. Not who is it? Who wants to know more? Jesus doesn't turn people away. It's not as if the, the broader general audience is saying, whoa, 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 Jesus, we want to hear the rest of the story. They're not listening. That's why they're being judged. He's not casting his pearls before swine. They're, he's teaching in this way, and they're content to leave in that way. Who is it that comes to Jesus and asks him for more insight? It's his disciples. Friends, if any man comes to him, he will in no wise turn you away. If you're hearing me teach the word of God this morning, look to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He will save you. The problem is, men don't seek Jesus. They're content to hear, assess, judge. Mm, okay, thank you. And to leave it at the, the foot of the church or the preacher. But yet they do not examine their own souls and say, I need to understand the state of my soul. Or, Lord, help me. Or would somebody lead me in the scriptures to say, is this me? I want to know more. I'm curious to be led into the truth. This is in the perspective of the teaching ministry of Jesus, this is both judgment, but it is also mercy and judgment. As we've already seen, that there are degrees of punishment. There are degrees in hell for those who've been exposed to the truth, to the light, 
And when you turn your back upon the truth, friends, it gets worse and worse and worse. He's already said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you. Because had Sodom and Gomorrah seen and heard the truth that you've been exposed to, they would have repented. And yet you've been exposed to, and you do not repent. And so it's out of not only judgment that he gives parables, but it's also out of mercy, friends. That's what we have to understand here. Secondly, we see, beginning in verse 36, the parable explained to those who ask of it, to the disciples. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitudes away, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. We want to know. We don't understand. But would you give us insight, teacher, master? Verse 37, So he answered to them and says, now notice the definitions he gives. This is where we begin to find out that this is different than the previous parable of the sower. Similar, but yet different. He said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Of course, the Son of Man is the description of himself. This is both his messianic title, it speaks of his messianic associations, and also describes his humanity. He says, He who sows the good seed at this point is not any man or every man within the kingdom. Whereas the previous parable, it was that way. You make application to it. The seed is the word of God. We are sowers of the seed in evangelism, right? The seed is the word, gospel tracts, the preaching of the gospel, giving Bibles to people. The word is the means, the transforming agent that brings to life. Here, the sower is the son of man. The sower is the son of God. 38, verse 38, the field is the world. Don't miss that. Many, many commentators miss this, and I don't understand why. And I went back in my memory, and I was thinking, wait a second, I've, I've heard this preached the same way. I've gone to youth rallies as a preteen, as a teen, and heard salvation messages on within the church. Are you a tear? Are you, are you the wheat? While there is certainly understandable leading application that gets to that point, we, we, need, we have to be careful here. Jesus says, listen, the, the field is the world. We are called to live as sons of light in a dark world alongside sons of the evil one. Do you understand that? But he's not talking about the church proper here. Now, we live in a fallen world, and of course, it's, our services are free to all. Anyone, the world can come in in that sense. But immediate application here is not the question this morning, although in one sense, it's always the open application. Am I in Christ, right? But here, the sower is the Son of God. Verse 38, the field is the world. True believers living alongside in a wicked environment, a fallen Genesis 3 world, believers living alongside the wicked. So the point is, we look here in this text, is that most of this, all of this is a future judgment, not an immediate judgment. There's an eschatological, speaking of end times, end things at play here. The field is the world. And until that future judgment happens, where God brings his elect, calls up his church, calls up all believers to himself in his second advent, in his second return, God calls God's sons, used here in this text, to live alongside the devil's sons. Friends, this is just blunt reality. The language here, we don't even use this language often. Devil's sons, God's sons. But this is the truth of the lost and the believing. And until the end of the age, God calls us to be faithful sons of the kingdom. 
alongside sons of the evil one. There's always been, in a sense, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. That is not to say, if you've got more than one or two children, that it's always 50-50. That's not what I'm saying. The point I'm trying to make here is simply the fact that it exists. And I want to comfort your hearts this morning if you're listening to me and just say, listen, the good news of the gospel is this. Where the gospel is present, people respond, are more prone to respond. God is kind in this age of grace to where I find the more I share the gospel, the more I preach the gospel, the more likely I am to bring a son of the evil one into the kingdom of light. becomes a son of the kingdom of God. This parallel points out to us this reality that is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. It is a stark reality, a real reality. There is the, the narrow way and there is the broad way. And this morning, everyone in this room is either on the narrow way or the broad way. You're either a son of the kingdom or you're a son of the evil one. You've either gone through the narrow gate or, you've gone through, or you are going through the broad gate. You are either the path of the righteous, Psalm 1, or you're on the path of the wicked. This is the very real reality and often a distinction, a tension that Jesus brings out, even in his own preaching as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew already. So as we look here in our text, we see this is a distinction. This is not about the church. This is about the world. And so some of you may be thinking, well, how do we know about our church? Listen, that's why God in his kindness and in his grace gives a redeemed body, pastors, shepherds, teachers, elders. As we think about who are we, who do we profess to be? Now, of course, the application is not the fact that this is the church, but some people will be looking around and say, well, have the sons of the evil one come in here? Well, listen, we're not afraid of them. In fact, we've got the gospel to give to them every single time. We don't live in fear of the sons of the evil one. I'm getting to my application just a little bit early, they're, but they're not the enemy. They are the mission field. What is, our, what, is our, what is our present posture towards the sons of the evil one? Well, as ones who were once one of them, it's one of, hey, here's the good news of the gospel. The grace of God in Christ saving us from our sins. We declare, we preach. But again, I'll come back to that at the end. Verse 38, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. In the previous parable, as I mentioned, of the sower, the seed was the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the word of Christ. Here, the seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the seed represents people who have been changed, reached by the message of Christ. So it's a reminder that we can't just walk aimlessly through the parables, making application in any way that we desire, any way that we that we want to. What one figure means in one parable is not necessarily equate to the next. In fact, it, something that just struck me, I put in my notes here, is there's the law of the teacher, but there's also the continual law of the learner church. We, we can't just come to the Bible or we can come to church on the Lord's Day and just check out. I got this. I know this. I've heard this. May the Lord help us to bring the law of the learner every time we come to God's Word. Say, Lord, grow me in the things that I don't understand. Remind me, O oh Lord, of things that I once understood, but I have forgotten. Lord, help me to, here's the kind of the key phrase as I am doing this. Help me, Lord, to, as a Christian, as a disciple, uh, help me to rightly divide the word of truth, to cut it straight. I, I can't treat it like a buffet and just take what I want and leave what is difficult. No, Lord, I want it all. Help me to understand exactly 
what you want me to have. We must bring our listening ears. And that's what Jesus says. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. So the, the seed is the sons of the kingdom. We are a product of Christ's work. He is the sower. So this is his explanation. He explains to us that his work, he has justified us. He has saved us judicially. But as sons of the kingdom, as I mentioned just a moment ago, he has left us here, he has sanctified us, and he is saving us actively as we experience that processing of the salvation he has gifted to us. But then verse 38 says, The tares are the sons, not of the kingdom, they are the sons of the wicked one. The sons of this world are sons of Satan. In fact, that sounds harsh. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Verse 37, John chapter 8, verse 37, and notice one of the starker messages that, that Jesus gives in John's recording of the teaching ministry of Jesus, where he point blank calls them sons of Satan. John chapter 8, verse 37, the contrast here is between Abraham's seed and Satan's. And he says, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants but you seek to kill me because my word has no, notice here, has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Well, Jesus is speaking pointedly. He's speaking blunt here. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Well, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. But notice here, you do the deeds of your father. This is sons of the evil one. This is telling them, you're not sons of God. You're not sons of Abraham spiritually. They're, they're holding on to that ethnic heritage. But he tells them point blank, you are sons. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication, implicating that he was. We have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And the desires of your Father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is, notice here, there is no truth in him. When you think about the temptations of the flesh and the whispers of Satan, just remember that there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Again, John 3, he gives that description he's already given, where they would not see the light. They turn away from the light because it reveals their sin and their wickedness. Which convicts you of sin? Excuse me, which of you convicts me of sin, Jesus asks. And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. This is a key insight that helps us understand our parable here. Coming back to Matthew chapter 13. There are only two families in this world. Just to put it succinctly and simply. Both then and now, the sons of the kingdom through faith in Christ, through the finished work of Christ, and the sons of the evil one, or to say, the flesh. 
the flesh. And all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the unfolding drama of redemption, beginning in the book of Genesis, you begin to see this played out. The works of the flesh and Cain coming before God saying, I will bring a sacrifice of my own making. I don't need your bloody sacrifice. I don't need to follow your instruction that Abel is following by bringing a lamb without blemish and sacrificing a lamb. I will do it my way. Then you're a son of the wicked one. Esau selling his birthright. Listen, Jacob was not any better. Jacob is a picture of the sovereign grace of God. It's not that Jacob was glorious and Esau was just a little worse. Listen, all is sovereign grace. And Esau is that picture of the flesh. Here we see the same thing. Friends, this morning, you are either a child of God or you are a child of Satan. You're either on the narrow road that leads to life or you're on the broad road that leads to to hell. Look with me, verse 39, going back to Matthew chapter 13. Look with me at verse 39. There is a harvest that is coming. And this harvest is not now. This harvest is at the end of the age. This is, as you see the full teaching of Scripture, referenced in a number of ways, the judgment seat of Christ. This is end time events. Many men do not believe in this, and it's why they will not repent. It's why they will not turn to Christ. They don't believe that there is a future harvest where the sheep and the goats are separated. And Paul describes in Romans chapter 3, it's why wrath upon wrath is being stored up. It's as if you think about these dams that are here in our area, the TVA and the dams that they, they hold back and they regulate the water flow for the rivers and the lakes. It's as if men are saying, well, there's not been any storm recently. Surely there's not going to be a future judgment because we don't see it, just like the men in the days of Noah said. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. It's never rained, it's never flooded before, until it did. And men think that way today. They think there is no judgment, there is no harvest at the end of the age, until it happens. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And friends, if we are not found in Christ, we will be judged. We will die, physically, then spiritually. Here we see more information on that in just a moment. But this harvest is at the end of the age when the Son of Man returns from heaven in His second advent. Last week we, we saw put emphasis on the resurrection. But what happened, happened after the resurrection? The ascension. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Now when He had spoken these things, while they watched, He was taken up and a cloud received Him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand around gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, notice, will so come in like manner, just like you saw him go into heaven. When, you say, whenever he desires, imminently is our response. When will he come not the first time as a lamb, but when will he come in his second advent? When will he come for his own? When will he come for the bride that he's bought? When will he come as a lion? We don't know. But one thing we can say confidently that is nearer today than ever before. That's one thing. We, the only thing we can ultimately say is that two things. He's coming in any minute. We're not date setters here. We don't read the newspapers and then try to make forecasts and those types of things. If you do, if we ever do that, run from this church as fast as you can. We are a false church if we tell you anything beyond the fact that his return is certain, that it is imminent. And we don't know anything beyond dates, calendars, and times and things like that. But friends, we know this, he will come for 
us. Verse 39, the harvest is at the end of the age. Verse 41, it will usher in his kingdom. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. This is an ushering in of the full, complete, composite kingdom of God. It is the commencement of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is consummated, and this is the end of the age as we know it. Wait, stop. I thought this was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. John the Baptist said, Jesus said, yes, spiritually. This is the complete, fully revealed, future aspect of the the kingdom of God. Verse 39. Jesus then instructs that the reapers are the angels. Now, this is important to understand. Angels, of course, are a category of beings that serve God, that do his bidding, that do his will except for those that have followed Lucifer that were expelled from heaven. And one of their works, now notice here, is the work of angels. This is not an action done by the church. These agents are the angels who do his bidding, who do his command, and this is the judgment. Verse 40, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age that the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom All things that offend, violate his truth, his law, and those who practice lawlessness will cast them, they will take them, they will cast them into the furnace of fire. and There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Notice the description of hell that is given here. Jesus is not shy about future judgment. Jesus, in fact, to those who say, well, I don't don't believe in hell. Listen, we learn more about hell from the teaching ministry of Jesus than we do any other. We cannot overlook this. Jesus speaks more about hell than even heaven with warning. Verse 41, they will gather out of his kingdom all the things that offend those who are stumbling blocks, not just to themselves, but those who practice lawlessness and prevent others, those who are weights, who offend who prevent others from coming to faith in Christ, the different deeds and methods, those who defy his law, those who reject the natural revelation of God, those who are rebellious against God, his word, the natural law that he has ordained, those who are rebellious against his people. Here, Listen to this. This is their future. This is their judgment. You look around the world today, and there's not just those celebrating iniquity, themselves by actions there are all the platforms that are that are trying to make all of us glory in it as well there are movie industries and reporters and news agencies that says this is normal this is to be tolerated accept this friends listen it's not just those who violate God's word but as you look around the world today we see vivid living illustrations it's not hard to to think like what what could this be talking about Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That means in their consciousness. The light that they have, they squelch because what may be known of God is manifest to them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. They exchange, verse 25, the truth of God for a lie. Now notice here, there's not just a judgment for these in the future, but there's an aspect where there's a present judgment. 
Romans 1.26, For the reason that God gave them up for their vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also their men leave the natural use of the woman, burning in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which is due. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, notice here, God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting and to reap in their flesh the due recompense of their actions there is a sense to where the sons of the evil one when they reject the light that god gives and pursue the path of iniquity abandon all righteousness abandon the truth that they know there's not just the reality of a future judgment there's an aspect to where god gives them over in the here and now and, and, and in the future day the floodgates of his wrath will fully and finally come down but in this life their life is extinguished sometimes pretty, uh, early, soon, because of the judgment of their actions, the judgments of their decisions. Their life is hastened towards this ultimate future judgment. So there's a present judgment even in iniquity. That's just practical that Paul describes in Romans 1. But bottom line, for those who are moral, not in their minds, in this description here in Romans 1, they are upstanding, morally righteous, relative righteousness. It's just outside of Christ. They reject the way of Christ. They reject repentance. They have no need for Christ or His righteousness. They are righteousness. There is a future judgment for them. Friends, if you're listening to me this morning, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It is today is the day of salvation. The fact that you're even here, the fact that you're even listening to this message or someone may listen to this message in, in a retroactive way, it is God's kindness. Then it could also be God's hardening judgment upon you. The fact that you will not repent. Here we often hear in the mantras of today's vernacular, culture, powers that be, we just want to be on the right side of history. Friends, this is the right side of history. And when you look around the world today, rarely is the majority right about anything. If the crowd is going one way, if the majority is going that way, I'm not trying to be fantastic here, but just kind of let your censors go up and just say, I, I need to pray about that. Whatever the majority of people are doing is usually not where you should be going or what you should be doing. Or whatever the popular beliefs or opinions are of the vernacular of the day, which is all the way, the goalposts are, goalposts are always moving, aren't they? Yeah, we're, we want to be right about history today, but then tomorrow, we've, we've gone 20 meters down the field. Listen, bottom line, this is the side of history that you want to be on. When Jesus says this will happen, when Jesus says these things shall happen, friends, you can take it to the bank. More sure than those bailing out the Silicon Valley Bank or anyone coming in to uh, rescue the things that we think are permanent, things that are for sure going to be there tomorrow, and we wake up and we realize, no, they're not. Jesus is sure. He is true. Notice this punishment is described. There is no laughing. There's no scorning. Jesus says there is wailing. There is gnashing of teeth, verse 42. It speaks of pain. It speaks of torment. It speaks of hellfire. And I will be absolutely honest with you. As I was meditating on this message, on this text, there reaches a point you just have to say, God, I give it to you. I cannot begin to enter in and fathom the full depths of God pouring out his wrath upon wickedness. But friends, it's true, regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of what we think about it. It is true. It is real. 
It will happen. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and just as real to be in heaven or to be in hell. If you hear about the judgment, if you're hearing this message and yet you are not in it, this is God's grace. This is his mercy. In fact, Hebrews 11, excuse me, Hebrews 3.15 today, if you will hear his voice and harden not your heart, you will be saved. Today, you can be made a son of the kingdom of heaven to turn to Christ and to run to Christ. Thank you for your patience bearing with me. We're going to look at one final thing here in verse 43. Cannot miss it. Cannot skip past it. This is our future hope as well. Then at the same time, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. What is this? Jesus has already made reference to the fact that his disciples shine. His righteousness applied to their life leads to good works and glory being brought to him. But here we see that full completion process. We've already mentioned justification and sanctification. This is glorification. Here that gospel treasure that we have inside our vessel, these clay pots, will break forth. It will shine forth. Zechariah 9.16, the Lord, their God, will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like jewels of the crown, like a banner over his land. This makes reference as prophecy to what Jesus is describing here. What will we do? We will shine we will be a part of his inheritance. We will glorify him. Matthew, excuse me, Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They went on to say, on that day, says the Lord of hosts, on that day, I will make them my jewels. Daniel 12.3, those who are wise. Notice here, those who are wise, who hear the word of the Lord, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn away to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. How do we know that will happen, LeGrand? Because you're shining now. This won't just happen then. How you know that you'll shine then as jewels in his crown is that you're shining now. What do I mean by that? The gospel has changed you. The gospel has transformed you. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Pick up on Matthew's language, Matthew 5, 14. You, church, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Listen, the modern church today, you can't, they're there, but as soon as they dissipate, you don't know where they are. They're not shining in the workforce. They're not shining in the neighborhoods. They're not shining on the ball fields. They're shining today because they're here. But what about tomorrow? Listen, a city, Jesus says, that is on a hill, you cannot, on a hill, you cannot hide. Nor do they light a lamp or put it under a basket or under a bushel. He goes on to say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Verse 43, the righteous will shine. How do we know they will shine? Because they're shining now. God's grace is at work in their life. God is sanctifying them. And one day he will glorify them. And one day their bodies will match and complete the full robed orb salvation that he has begun in us. Praise his name. Friends, this is, our, this is our hope. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the fact that he will save us fully, finally, 
from the presence of sin. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 that we have this treasure in broken vessels. That the gospel, in a sense, he gives us metaphorical language that we were once broken in our sin and shame. But now we have this treasure with the gospel in our clay pots. But that day, the clay pots will match the treasure that is within. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Hey, we may not look like much, but in that day, we will match the reality of what is inside. And until then, he is constantly transforming us and changing us into his image. So we close this morning with number three, this parable applied. How do we apply this parable to Grace Church today? Oh, well, it's really easy. We continue. We remain. We stay rooted and fast in this gospel that we say we believe. We give evidence to it. Tomorrow, when we go to work, we're not like everybody else. Even, honestly, like a lot of people who profess to be Christians. We're not going to be dragging into work. And I'm not saying discounting you may feel bad and sick in the flesh. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about realities. We are different, aren't we? This comes out of a day of service for the king and rest for the king. We're feasting on the, the truths of God's word. I cannot be like everybody else. This is part of how I shine. How was your weekend? Uh, okay. Friends, it's more than okay. And I'm not talking about me and the message. I'm just talking about what we experience. I'm talking about what the Lord's Day gives us. If that doesn't float our boat, God's grace, I don't know what will. This is how we shine. How do we exist as sons of the kingdom among, among the sons of the world? Well, listen, we preach the gospel. We live the gospel. We are given the commission to take the gospel to every creature. We don't know who the elect are. God has a bride that he's redeeming, but that is his knowledge. That is not our knowledge. So our posture is any man who will come, all come to beg, to plead, to repent, and to give you the encouragement to run to Christ, to look to Christ, and to live. And those who do, you will reveal yourself to be a part of the bride of Christ. Now, we may not look like much, but today is the Lord's Day. We continue to do these things. This evening, we'll gather together at 6 p.m., and we'll look at the book of Ruth and see the glories of the gospel, of God's unfolding drama of redemption in really the weeds of the darkest X-rated part of all the Bible, in the context of the judges. And yet God in his glorious gospel shine there. We'll observe the Lord's table. We will see believers come and exercise believers' baptism and be immersed within the waters following in obedience to the Lord's command. We will add new members. And friends, we keep doing that until he comes again or until he calls us home. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the gospel that we have tasted and seen. And Father, that is the treasure that is within our lives that we shine forth, that we remind ourselves of every single day as we deal with sin and growth and grace, promises that we look forward to in the future. Father, we pray that you would use Grace Church, Lord, to bring many sons to glory. Many sons who were once sons of the wicked one. And Father, to redeem them and to reveal themselves to ultimately always have been sons of the king. Father, we pray that you would use us to constantly not only believe the gospel, but to preach it, to share it, to give it.
and to live it. Would you bless your church as you are pleased to do? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grace, let's stand and close our time.